All right, as we begin this morning, if you could turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, we will refer to a verse in here uh, momentarily, and as you know from the questions this week, we tried to, well we did, read two books, and we will attempt to try and cover both of those books this morning. To be honest, I'm not all that optimistic about it. I actually have a ton of content for Second Peter, but we will try to save a couple minutes just to look at Jude at the end. However, before we get into the questions this morning, I want to take a page out of uh, Jeff's book, actually, and what he did with James, and just pause and do a quick character study on the person of Peter. Perhaps it's because of First and Second Peter's uh, proximity uh, in the scriptures. They are kind of near the end of the Bible. We kind of lose track of them, and maybe it's just me, but I actually forget that the same Peter that we encounter in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and also Acts, is the same Peter who wrote these two epistles that show up at the end of Scripture. I just totally have disconnected those two things. And come to find out, we actually know a lot about the author, Peter. Uh, So let me get a little bit of audience participation this morning. When you think about Peter the disciple, what are some of the noteworthy stories or instances from his life that come to mind as we try and set the scene for the person who wrote these two epistles here? Johnny. Yeah, when he walked on water with Jesus, no lie, that was the very first thing I had written down. You know, we know the story. Jesus is walking on the water in the midst of the storm. Peter, eager as he is, says, hey, let me come out and join you. He starts taking steps, and then what happens? He sees the wind and the waves and starts to sink, and Jesus has to rescue him. Yeah, great one. What else is Peter known for? What else comes to mind? Hutch. Yeah, maybe the most, like, Noteworthy black mark that Peter has on his record is denying Christ three times after earlier in the day, boldly proclaiming that even though everyone else might, he would never deny Jesus. Yeah, any other instances from his life that come to mind when you think about Peter? John. He rebuked Jesus. Yeah, Uh, Jesus was saying something about he was going to die, and Peter was like, no way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, anything else? Yeah. So, so he also has some really incredible Totally. Yeah, I had both of those things written down as well. For as, you know, impetuous as Peter seems and brash, he also has some awesome statements where he tells Jesus, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. He's the first, well, that we have recorded to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. When everyone else was getting Jesus's identity wrong, Peter pipes up and says, no, you are the Christ. Uh, We know that Peter was in Jesus' inner circle of disciples with James and John. We know Peter was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. One of the more humorous stories that involves Peter is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and this whole crowd comes to arrest Jesus and he whips out his sword and cuts someone's ear off. Right? We have this kind of idea of Peter, I said it already, as being a little 
brash, passionate, maybe a little stubborn. He just kind of says whatever comes to his mind. But one of the pivotal moments of Peter's life takes place after the resurrection when Jesus appears to him and the other disciples on the beach there, and Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter replies, you know I love you, Lord. And what is Jesus' response each time that Jesus says, do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. What is Jesus' command or his follow-up statement? Yeah, hutch. Feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, don't just tell me you love me, but demonstrate that you love me by shepherding the flock of God, by taking great care for the church. And as we transition out of the Gospels into the book of Acts, we see Peter doing just that. It's almost like a light bulb moment or a flip, a switch flips in his mind. Because all of the sudden, Peter is an outspoken, bold defender of the faith. He is critical. He is a vital part in helping the early church get its feet on the ground. He is the one on the day of Pentecost who is there preaching when 3,000 people get saved. He is the one standing before Annas and Caiaphas, the very guys who are responsible for Jesus' death. And he says, you can't silence us. We're going to obey God rather than men. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. It is Peter who goes to Cornelius, and the first Gentile is converted because of Peter's ministry. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, it is Peter again when people are discussing whether or not Gentiles need to follow the Mosaic law. Peter stands up, and he says, listen, Gentiles are saved the same way we are. It is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. We cannot put this burden of the law on them. This is the same Peter who wrote these epistles. This is the Peter who at the end of his life is writing First and Second Peter. How do we know this is the end of his life? We're in Second Peter chapter 1. Let me just point out, we'll read verses 12 to 15 together and notice some of the indicators that help us see Peter is anticipating dying shortly. He's just rehearsed these seven qualities, and he says, Therefore, verse 12, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Do you see some of the indicators in these verses that make you think Peter's going to die soon? He talks about the putting off of his body. He talks about his departure. Here Peter is at the end of his life. And what's he doing? He's still feeding Jesus his sheep. He's still showing great concern for the flock of God, reminding them of these qualities so that even after his death, the church will remember what is vital to walking with Jesus. I just kind of love the story of Peter. 
And I think that the, perhaps there are a couple of takeaways from us this morning before we even look at the text from the life of Peter. The first being this. God can use anybody. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're comparing yourself to other people and you're thinking, well, I'm not as gifted as this person. I'm a little rough around the edges. My personality's a little prickly. Peter was that guy. And yet God used him in a mighty way when he just submitted his life to Christ. Maybe there's a rebuke to some of us who look at other people and scratch our heads thinking, can God really use that person in any spiritual significance? We tend to write people off. And yet here Peter is committing this, what seems to us, a huge sin in denying Jesus three times. And he was still used after that event. Maybe a third takeaway from the life of Peter is this. Don't ever get over what Jesus has done for you. To borrow from the words of Peter, he could not help but speak about what he had seen and heard. And here he is at the end of his life, and he's still talking about it. And he's still encouraging people, keep following Jesus. After I'm dead, keep following him. Persevere, endure, be strong in the faith. I think Peter, just by his life and in the background to these letters, has a lot to teach us. Looking now at these questions here in chapter one, we're here already. Peter introduces these qualities or virtues that are a critical part of the Christian life. Certainly, faith is step one to knowing Jesus, but Peter says it doesn't end there. You have to add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. What Peter is saying is we don't just repent and believe and then coast through the rest of our life saying, okay, we're good. We have heaven. No, we need to be actively engaged in developing Christ-like character in this life. And in case you aren't convinced that these qualities or virtues are important, Peter says these are incredibly important, that you make these things a part of your faith. So we'll begin with the negative component of these virtues. A person who lacks these qualities, according to verse 9, what is true of them? If you are not evidencing these qualities in your life, what's true of you? Yeah, they're blind. I think Peter even says they are so nearsighted that he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. I think we could summarize it like this. If growing in godliness is not part of your life, if you aren't demonstrating these characteristics, then it is because you have forgotten what you are saved from. You are so nearsighted that you have forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins. This is reiterized or really reminiscent of what Peter says in 1 Peter, maybe three off the top of my head, when he says, you've been bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. This price is not silver or gold or precious metals or human currency, but the price that you have been bought is the precious blood of Jesus Christ without 
uh, blemish or spot. Peter tells us to be holy as God is holy. It's reminiscent of what Romans 6 says that we studied last week when our relationship, now that we are in Christ, is a relationship of being dead to sin. Peter is saying over and over and over again, a Christian has a responsibility to practice godliness, to be excelling in these virtues here. There is no place for a stagnant Christian, someone who is not developing and growing. If that is the case, you are evidencing that you've forgotten what you're saved from. If you meet a person who claims to be a Christian, and yet there is no fruit in their life, there's no growth, there's no Christ-likeness, you could rightly conclude that at best, they are just forgetting the gospel. At worst, they're not a Christian at all. And that'll be evidenced next week in 1 John. One of our assignments in the reading for this week is just going to be to look over and over and over again at the evidences of true faith. John keeps harping on that. We're seeing it here in Peter. A Christian grows. They increases in their Christ-likeness. Do you think continuing in godliness is important? Totally. Yeah, that's just the negative uh, component. So how about the second question here? In contrast, what is true of a person who practices and increases in these qualities? According to verses 8 and 10, if you're looking at those things, Peter has some positive things to say about these qualities. What is it? Yeah, Brent. Uh, You got it exactly right. Verse 8, if you, inc- if you are increasing in these things, it will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Verse 10, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And as I was thinking about this list here, I was just struck by the fact that I cannot think of any other list in the scriptures that this much significance is attached to practicing these qualities or these attributes here. I mean, can you think of any other time in the scriptures in which an author says something and says, and if you don't do these things, you're forgetting that you've been cleansed from your sins. And if you do do them, you will never be unfruitful in the ministry. You will never fall. Do do you see why Peter makes his mission in verses 12 to 15 to make sure that the church knows these attributes long after he's dead? This is how important these things are. And so I think it's worth taking just a moment to let me define each of these attributes here and for you in your seat to just consider if these things are a part of your life, if you're growing in them, if you're increasing in them. Perhaps you've heard of Jim Berg before. Uh, These definitions are largely from his book titled Essential Virtues, that the whole premise is based off of this passage right here. Let me just read through some of these definitions and just sit here and ask yourself, are these things a part of my life? Am I growing in them? Beginning with virtue. Perhaps you have a footnote in your Bible that attached to the word virtue that also shows you it could be translated excellence. That's kind of the direction we'll go with this first definition here. There should be an excellence, a single-mindedness, a pursuit of following Jesus with your whole being that must be a part of your life. Are you pursuing virtue or excellence? Knowledge, growing and understanding of the person of Christ, engaging in spiritual realities, not standing aloof to the scriptures, but recognizing, I need these things every single day. I have to know Jesus. I have to increase in my knowledge of him. Self-control, it's the ability to say no to fleshly impulses, to demonstrate restraint, to not be controlled by your flesh, but be controlled by the spirit. Are you modeling self-control? Steadfastness, it's the ability to persevere through trials and difficulty. You aren't a person who's frantic and anxious, but you endure. 
You're steadfast. You persevere through trials, knowing the one who's in control of all things. Godliness is a, ref- is a reference to pursuing good works, pursuing righteousness, forsaking evil. It's a person who says, I'm going to follow the teachings of the scriptures and God's example, despite what the world has to say. I'm going to be godly. Brotherly love has this idea of how we treat other believers. We should possess a unity an affection for one another, a commonality that says, we have Christ in common. That's enough. I love you. And lastly, that last attribute there, love, highlights that self-sacrificing component. It mirrors the love that Jesus showed us on the cross, where we say, your needs are more important than my own. I will choose to love you. Peter says, make these seven things a part of your life. This is critical, but we cannot miss a key component. According to verse 3, what enables us to live these godly lives? Claire? God's divine power. power. Yeah, and here's the encouraging part of this whole thing. If godliness were up to us, that'd be pretty discouraging, huh? Because we try sometimes to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and say, I'm going to purpose today to be more loving, to be humble, to be steadfast, to be self-controlled, and try as we might, we inevitably fail. We can't even be godly in our own strength. We have divine power, though, that is equipping us to do these things. We have to come to a place where we say, Lord, even the things that you want me to do, I can't. I am reliant and dependent on you. Now, this doesn't mean we sit on the couch and passively wait for godliness to just smack us upside the head. Oh, wow, I've become a mature Christian. No way. Peter says, uh, I think he says somewhere in here that we have to be working at these things. I can't see the exact verse reference there. I know it's in there. There's this dual responsibility. We work, we develop these things, but we have divine power within us to help us be enacting out these qualities that Peter has here. All right, Uh, we'll skip the apply section from chapter one. I hope you did this this week and that God gave you an opportunity to practice these virtues. When we come to the second set of questions from chapter one, Peter really seems to be honing in on this group of false teachers, particularly these false teachers who have heard Peter say in first and second Peter that godliness and holy holy living must be a key part of the Christian life, and they say, eh, that's not really necessary. I don't know if I believe that. In chapter 2, Peter describes these false teachers like this. He says, they're going to have eyes full of adultery. They are insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed. They are slaves to corruption. These false teachers deny that godliness is a necessary component to Christian living. And unfortunately, these false teachers don't live in a bubble somewhere and just teach this. They actually seduce people from the church who follow them and engage in worldliness. And Peter, in response to this, rebukes them. There's a further description in chapter 3 of these false teachers who question whether or not Jesus is going to return. They're called scoffers, and because they doubt whether or not Jesus is going to return, they say, well, I don't need to prepare for Jesus' return. I don't need to live a holy life now. If I don't believe Jesus is going to come back, why would I live like it? And this is subtle, but these people are actually doing more than just denying the return of Jesus Christ. 
I believe that these people are calling into question all the words of Christ. If they're not willing to believe that he's coming back, they're obviously not willing to trust his words or take his words as authoritative when Jesus says, be holy. They say, I'm good. I don't need to. That They're casting doubt over all that Jesus says. If we're not going to trust him in one particular arena about his return, why would we ever take his words authoritative as to the rest of our life? Why should Jesus dictate how I live if I don't believe he's coming back? So Peter responds to these false teachers pretty abruptly, pretty harshly, as we'll see in chapter 2, but he begins just by talking about the coming of Jesus. So first question, according to verse 16, when Peter preached about the coming of Jesus, was he just perpetuating some myth or story that he had heard secondhand from someone else? No, no way. Peter didn't wake up one morning and think to himself, hmm, how can I get all of these Christians to kind of straighten up a little bit? They're kind of misbehaving. I know. I'll just tell them that Jesus is coming back, that he's authoritative, that he has power and majesty and glory. No, 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 no. Peter is an eyewitness to Jesus' power and majesty. Second question, what event is Peter describing in verses 17 and 18 when he says that he personally heard the voice of God and was an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ? What event is he describing? The transfiguration. Yeah, let's not forget that Peter has already seen the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, when Jesus' clothes were as bright as the sun or his face. Peter was there when the voice of God declared, actually, Peter was talking, and God interrupts him and says, this is my son, listen to him. Peter falls along with the other two disciples on his face. He has heard the voice of God. He has seen the majesty of Christ, and he's telling us, We can trust that Jesus is coming back because I've seen his glory. I know that he is God, that he keeps his word. Live like it yet. Third question, what does Peter say is an even fuller confirmation of the truth about Jesus than even this experience? Scriptures. Scriptures. Yes, Peter says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. There is something even better than seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain. Can you imagine this? What an experience Peter had. And yet perhaps he's anticipating that people are going to ask him, well, Peter, did you really see that? You know, that was just your personal experience. How many other people were there? Three? We're supposed to trust these guys? Peter says, there's something even better than my eyewitness account about the authority of the scripture. It it, it is the authority of the scriptures. These prophets were not just spouting off things that they heard, but there was the Holy Spirit behind these men working out the scriptures. They're coming true. So given the reliability of the scriptures, what is Peter's advice in verse 19? If these are even more reliable than his personal experience, what is Peter's advice? What does he say? Pay attention. Take heed. You must consider what you are holding in your hands this morning to be the very word of God as authoritative in our lives. Pay attention to it. And rather than just letting me try to convince you that God's word is authoritative, I asked us to actually go back and consider some Old Testament prophecies that we see come true in the New Testament. So we'll just work through these one at a time. 
in Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18, what prophecy is found that is later fulfilled in the New Testament? Uh, Timmy. His death on the cross. Yeah, uh, specifically from Psalm 22. Did you have any of the exact uh, little quotes in there? No, no, I'll read them for you then. Yeah, you're exactly right. It is his death on the cross. Uh, this whole psalm really seems to be messianic. Jesus quotes the first verse on the cross. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in verses 16 to 18, we see words like this. Verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, they stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Yeah, Psalm 22 is anticipating the crucifixion. How about Psalm 34? What is unique in that prophecy? Brenda. Yeah, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. It seems pretty customary, at least from the evidence of the scriptures, that they would break the legs of the people that were being crucified. In fact, that happened to both thieves next to Jesus, and they're coming to Jesus to break his legs, but they see he's already dead. Seems like an insignificant detail to us, and yet we realize this was a prophecy, that not one of his bones would be broken. Yeah, how about Micah 5, 2? What does that prophesy that came true? Claire. Yeah, which was? Yeah, Micah 5, 2 anticipates that from Bethlehem is going to come a ruler. Sure enough, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, not because even Mary and Joseph lived there, but there was a whole census that moved them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This is God at work here. How about Zechariah 9? What does that prophesy or anticipate in the Old Testament? Did anyone get that one? Yeah, Lisa. Yeah. Zechariah 9, the king is coming humble and mounted on a donkey. Did not Jesus come into Jerusalem? exactly like that, mounted on a donkey. So listen, this is just four prophecies in the Old Testament that we stopped and realized that Jesus fulfilled. I saw an estimate this week that a conservative number of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is 300. It could be more than that. Now, if one of these, one or two of these things were true of Jesus, people would say, mm, okay, that's interesting that the Old Testament prophesied things that happened happened to Christ. But 300 of these things that the Old Testament predicts that come true, there's no other explanation for this than that God is the author of the scriptures. And so the point for us then is this. If the scriptures have proven true time and time and time again about past events, what does it say about the reliability of the scriptures concerning events that are still to come? Can we trust it? Totally. Certainly there's still a faith component but isn't faith a lot easier when you've seen God work like this? When you've seen his faithfulness time and time and time again, we can trust, particularly in the context of Second Peter here, that Jesus is returning. We come now to chapter 2, and here in this chapter, Peter really doubles down on these false teachers. I already read you some descriptions of these people. Generally, they are just people who are saying, you know what? Live however you want. Certainly, you know, Jesus is good for salvation, but he has no demands on your life after coming to him. So live like the world. Engage in the passions of your flesh. It's kind of a heavy chapter. Maybe you read it this week and you're like, that was a lot. Uh, just a lot of like rebukes and condemnation of these people. And yet, 
in the middle of this chapter, there's this awesome, like, glimpse of hope that verse 9 contains. You may have read it and been thinking to yourself, Ugh, is wickedness ever going to be judged? Peter says this in verse 9. What does he say? Anyone want to answer that question? Yeah. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of trials. Yeah. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of trials. And there's something that's said about the wicked as well. Verse 9, he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter's reminding us that the events that these people find themselves in are not anything new. There always seem to be wicked people on the earth, and God always judges them. There's always righteous people, and God preserves them. And so to reinforce this idea, Peter actually has us hearken back to some Old Testament events, some events from biblical history. In verse 4, what does he remind us of? What evidence do we have? Yeah, Diane. Yeah, you need to the angels. Here are these powerful beings created to be God's servants, and they sin, and they're not exempt from God's judgment. God judges even the angels. How about from verse 5? There's kind of a positive and negative statement here. What event does Peter draw to mind? Brenda? Uh, He brought the flood to the ungodly world. If you remember from Genesis 6, God saw that every uh, thought and intent of the heart of man was only evil continually. Well, God judged them. However, positively from this story, God also preserved Noah and his family. How about from verses 6 to 8? What other example does Peter draw our attention to to say, listen, God always judges wicked people. What story does he bring to mind? Diane. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah. He saved a lot. Yeah. So on the one hand, there is this incredibly wicked city, maybe the second most vivid example of wickedness in the Old Testament after the flood is Sodom and Gomorrah, and God judges them. He pours out fire and brimstone on them, but positively, he saves Lot and his family. I find Peter's designation of Lot or description of him to be particularly interesting. He calls him righteous Lot. Uh, Perhaps you were left scratching your head at that one. Like, Lot doesn't seem all that good of a guy when we read about him in the Old Testament. He makes... Him and his kids make some pretty bad decisions. He's easy to gang up on. But here Peter says he's righteous. He was a man who was in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. His heart was being grieved by the sin that he saw around him. God always, Peter is reminding us, judges the wicked and preserves the righteous. Look to biblical history to see this played out. So as we apply this, how does this chapter serve as a warning to you? Very generally, you're reading this. What stands out to you as perhaps a warning? John. Patiently and expectantly live a holy life. Uh, Jesus Christ will come even right now. So, is coming today. Yes. Live a holy life right now. Maybe we could put it as in the warning context, do not engage in wickedness. When you engage in wickedness, you are setting yourself up to be judged by God. He's just proven time and time again, you're wicked, he judges you. Any encouragements from this chapter? Copy. We don't have to worry or think about all this wickedness around us. There's a day of judgment and vengeance is God's. Let him take care of it. Bingo. You got it. That is awesome. God is just. 
And although we certainly look around at life today and all of the successful and rich and wealthy people are immoral and corrupt, they abuse people, they take advantage of others, and we're like, really? With the psalmist, we say, is wickedness really going to prosper? Peter says, God's just. There's coming a day of judgment in which the wicked people will be judged. Vengeance is God's. This does not fall on us to try and sort out. So I want to make one final remark about this chapter before we move on. There are some people today who really question. They say, hey, the New Testament's awesome. Does the Old Testament have any value? Should we really consider it uh, as part of our life and faith? Well, here Peter relies heavily on the Old Testament to just show us from biblical history some awesome things about God's character. So to that question, is the Old Testament relevant to life today? Peter shows us, yeah, it absolutely is. Romans 15 says this, these things were written for our instruction. And I'll reveal this a little bit later, but our reading plan for next year is going to be from the Old Testament. So really, we're going to try and draw out a lot of these things and show and demonstrate that, of course, the Old Testament is a key component to our scriptures. It is something that we should still be looking at and applying to everyday life, as Peter did here. Moving on now to chapter 3. Um, I alluded to this already, but Peter says there are going to be people in the last days who scoff at what appears to be in a delay in Jesus' return. How, how do they respond exactly? What, what, what kind of question are they asking, according to verse 4? Claire? Where's the promise of his coming? Yeah, where's the promise of his coming? I think verse 4 continues, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Essentially, what they're asking is this. Is Jesus really going to come back? Where is he? Didn't he say he was going to be coming back soon? He's still not here. It's been, what, from our perspective, 2,000 years? Is he really keeping his word? If God was serious about this, surely he would have kept his word by now. And this leads people to justify their bad behavior. They make Jesus out to be the boy who cried wolf. And initially, everyone gets serious. Oh, Jesus could return. We'll shape up our behavior. But as time progresses, they don't take it so seriously anymore. And they say, we're going to continue engaging in a sinful lifestyle. One interesting thing that Peter points out is that scoffers actually have a faulty way of thinking. They say, since the beginning of creation, things have been continuing as they were. Nothing has ever happened. Peter says, uh, that's not true. Look at the flood. Once before, God has already judged wickedness, and he's doing so again. Not with water. This time, he's going to do it with fire. So Peter addresses these people in verse 9 and gives us a reason that there appears to be a delay. What is that reason? Diane. God is long-suffering and doesn't want any to perish. Yes. Any reason that it might seem that Jesus' return seems to be delayed is not, in fact, a delay at all. It is actually evidence of God's patience and his love because God is not willing that any should perish. He's giving people, like these scoffers, more time to repent and to come to Christ. So, verse 8, how does that help shape our thinking about God, time, and the return of Christ? This might be a little bit hard to explain, but would someone just be willing to take a crack at it? What is that verse teaching us? Tammy? I put that he is eternal, he never changes, and he is always in control. Yeah. That's a nice summary. God's eternal, he never changes. Anyone else want to take a little crack at what those verses might be saying? Yeah, Bonnie. God's perception of time and doing things 
Definitely. Yeah, that's a really good summary right there, that God's perception of time is totally different than ours. Peter says, listen, a thousand years is like a day to God. And a, th- and a day can be like a thousand years to him. In essence, God is not bound to this 24-hour, you know, day that we are bound to on earth. In some ways, it's been two days since Jesus ascended into heaven, if we're going to use that scale of time there, right? So, so we cannot uh, really bind God to our way of thinking about time. He exists outside of it. As we turn to the apply section, then, Peter has some instructions for people as they await the return of Christ that is imminent, that is near. How does he instruct people how to live in verses 11 to 14? I'll just go ahead and read those two verses. Verse 11, Peter says, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, And at peace, I realize we've been hitting this pretty hard, that Jesus is returning, so be prepared, but Peter keeps saying it. Live a holy, godly life. Be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. It is imminent. The illustration in Scripture is used, Jesus' return is going to be like a thief in the night. And everyone knows that you are prepared for a thief to come. You don't leave your door unlocked. You don't leave money on the counter. You don't put a sign on your door when you're on vacation and say, I'm gone. (laughs) You're always prepared for a thief. You have motion-activated lights. You keep your door locked. You take steps to be prepared for it. So, too, we take steps to be prepared for the return of Christ. And I want to pause here, and this might finish the rest of our time, but I want us to think for a moment soberly about this question because perhaps you've thought it. What happens if I am not prepared for the return of Christ? And does Scripture say anything about that? If I'm not prepared, does my face get a little flushed and I'm a little embarrassed and I say, oops, I missed it? And then we just kind of shuffle along in line with everybody else and say, well, that was kind of awkward. But I'm good. Is that what happens if we're not prepared for the return of Christ? Jesus actually talks about this in a series of parables that take place in Matthew 24 and 25. The first one, we're not going to turn there, I'll just kind of describe then for you. Matthew 24, there is a servant who is put in charge of the master's possessions. The servant is described as wicked. And time passes, and eventually the servant says, my master is delayed in coming. So he starts to party. He starts to mistreat the other servants, and all of the sudden, the master comes without warning and finds this wicked servant. And what happens to this wicked servant? Does he get a little slap on the wrist? Does he feel a little embarrassed? And he, oh, okay, we're good. No, the text says that this wicked servant is cut into pieces and he's cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very next parable, there are these ten virgins who are preparing for the return of the bridegroom. Five are ready, five are not. The bridegroom is, notice, delayed. 
in returning. And when he eventually comes at midnight, only five are ready to accompany him to the party. The other five have to go buy oil. And they come, they find the house locked, they knock on the door, hey, let us in, we're ready. And how does the bridegroom respond? I never knew you. Third parable, immediately in a row, Jesus is rattling these things off. He talks about a master who departs and leaves three servants with talents of money. Two of them invest the money while he is gone. One of them does not. At the master's return, he commends the two servants who were faithful and the third who did nothing. You know this well. What does he have to show for his life? Nothing. What happens to him? Slap on the wrist? No. He is cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mention these parables to you because according to the scriptures, there are much higher stakes for not being prepared for the return of Christ than just being a little embarrassed. Eternity is at stake here. And I want you to listen carefully to what I am and what I'm not saying. Purely being ready for the return of Christ does not mean that you get saved. And not being ready for the return of Christ does not mean that you lose your salvation. Obviously, we know people are saved not because they're ready or they're not, but because they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone. What these scriptures are demonstrating, though, is that one of the fruits of someone who knows Jesus Christ truly is that they're ready for his return. And people who don't know Christ are living like he's not coming back. So don't deceive yourself and think you're a Christian and you're not ready for the return of Christ. You cannot be living, immersed in the world, saying, the master is delayed, I'm going to do whatever I want, and when the trumpet sounds, expect to be called up with everybody else. Jesus sets the expectation very clearly for us. True believers are ready for the return of Jesus Christ. They are making decisions every single day, thinking, what if Jesus returns? How am I going to live my life? This doesn't mean you don't have bad days. This doesn't mean that sin still doesn't, you know, have a hold of our life. Certainly, we know it does. Peter reminds us, we wage war against the flesh. But the general trajectory of our lives is one of godliness. It is one that has taken these virtues that Peter describes and we're practicing them. We're living them. David Platt, he's a commentator I read preparing for this. He asks a series of questions asking whether or not we're ready for the return of Christ. Let me just read these, and then we'll close. He says, How would you live differently today if you knew Jesus was coming back tonight? Will you be found walking in obedience to him when he returns? Or will you be found wandering in disobedience? Will you be found loving your neighbor or ignoring your neighbor? Will you be found passionately devoted to your spouse? or practically negligent of your spouse? Will you be found hating sin or holding on to sin? And I want you to notice this last question here. David Platt asks this. Are you involved in actions, thoughts, and attitudes that would not make sense if it were the last hour of your life? Are you participating in things that if you knew Jesus was going to return would seem senseless? Why are you living like that? We don't know when Jesus is going to return, 
but the teaching throughout the New Testament, Jesus himself, Peter, Paul, the end of Revelation, the very last chapter, Jesus says three times, I'm coming soon. We have to be ready for the return of Christ. And one of the evidences that we possess new life is that we are. That we're working towards it. That we are pursuing godliness and making decisions like Jesus is going to return at any moment. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and the warnings you give us. We're thankful for just how clear it is on issues like this. Help us, Lord, to be ready for your return. Give us the grace to be able to just navigate through all the distractions of life and say, you know what? I'm clinging to Christ. I'm making decisions that make sense. If he returns in an hour, I'm ready. Please give us the grace to live like that today. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.